Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered at Liquid by Pastor Tim Lucas. Liquidchurch.com, living water for a thirsty generation. Now, we're live on the web. Happy spring? Yes? Hey, finally spring. I know, and with that brings the hope of renewal, right, of things being refreshed and renewed, the warmer weather, so... I thought it'd actually be a time to do just that, actually, kind of on a church-wide scale. Just kind of refresh our sense of direction and purpose um, for which we gather each week. Because going to church can easily become kind of um, routine. We can fall into a rut, let our faith become kind of ritual, worse yet, become (laughs) religious-y, where the presence of God is kind of, in our lives, is kind of atrophies and withers. And we don't come alive, we become just busy. Busy going to things, meeting with people, but, but actually failing to actually fulfill the mission for which God has brought us together. So just to reawaken us and kind of refresh our sense of mission this spring at Liquid, I'd like to actually turn to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to look at the first six verses to serve as our orienting text tonight. Um, you have Pew Bibles in front of you. This is on page 1912. We'll be reading from the message paraphrase. And Ephesians is a letter, actually. It's not even a book. It's a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus, of all things. And Paul is actually writing from a prison in Rome. This is a jailbird's letter. (laughs) He's a prisoner. But he writes a letter of instruction and encouragement to the Ephesian believers to encourage them to stay on course, to stay on mission with Christ Jesus. Ephesians 3, we'll look at the first six verses. This is why I, Paul, am in jail for Christ, having taken up the cause of you outsiders, so-called. I take it that you're familiar with the part I was given in God's plan for including everybody. I got the inside story on this from God himself, as I just wrote you in brief. As you read over what I've written to you, you'll be able to see for yourselves into the mystery of Christ. None of our ancestors understood this. Only in our time has it been made clear by God's Spirit through His holy apostles and prophets of this new order. The mystery is that people who have never heard of God and those who've heard of Him all their lives, what I've been calling outsiders and insiders, stand on the same ground before God. They get the same offer, same help, same promises in Christ Jesus. The message is accessible and welcoming to everyone across the board. We'll stop right there at verse 6. And in his note, Paul makes mention of insiders and outsiders. And if you know a little something about his audience, you know that Paul was likely referring to Jewish believers who'd, who'd grown up with a knowledge of the Bible, of Scripture, of the God of the Old Testament, insiders, And then Gentiles, these are pagan folks who'd never heard of Jesus Christ before in their lives. And as you can imagine, there was a bit of a divide between the two. Insiders, long-time church folks, coming to believe that they were a bit like kind of superior to the outsiders who knew nothing about God or faith. And that's not a surprise. Spiritual snobs have always existed in the Christian church, right? Some of us have the gift of spiritual snobbery, But Paul writes this letter from prison as a corrective to that. To be clear about what Christ accomplished for everybody and what the mission is that his church inherited. And he writes, as you read over what I've written to you, 
You'll be able to see for yourselves into the mystery of Christ. And then he defines the mystery in verse 6. Here it is. The mystery is that people who have never heard of God and those who have heard of him all their lives, what I've been calling outsiders and insiders, stand on the same ground before God. They get the same offer, the same help, the same promises in Christ Jesus. The message is accessible and welcoming to everyone across the board. In other words, Paul says, now that Jesus Christ has died on the cross, has been resurrected to life for the sins of the world, there is no more room for us, them, religion. Everybody gets in on it. Jews, Christians, Greeks, geeks, doesn't matter. Christ Jesus died for the sins of everyone. And that means everyone, regardless of what they've done, regardless of their previous religious background or lack thereof, they get in on it. We can all be a child of God, welcomed back into the arms of our Creator through the life of His Son, Christ Jesus. Everyone on board. And that's the exact mission that we've adopted here at Liquid. Those of you who work in the corporate world know mission statements are popular for organizations. And a lot of companies or businesses will try to be all fancy and memorable in defining what they're about. But our mission statement at Liquid is actually pretty straightforward. Liquid exists to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And we do that in three ways. By pursuing intimacy with God, community with insiders, and influence with outsiders. It actually sort of echoes Paul's writing about the unity of all peoples under the gospel of Christ. You'll find our mission statement in your bulletin. Now, here's the deal. They say that any good mission statement worth its weight in gold should be able to pass the cocktail napkin test. Have you ever heard of the cocktail napkin test? It means if you were sitting at a restaurant or a bar and uh, and someone said, well, what's the point of your organization? You should be able to write it on a cocktail napkin, illustrate. I don't even mean write it out, but show them a visual of that. And so we've come to summarize the mission of our church this way by highlighting three vital relationships. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. We don't have cocktail napkins. We're not serving alcohol tonight. That's next Sunday. (laughs) But in your bulletin, there's room under notes, and I want you to draw something. I want you to actually draw a triangle. There you go. We're not going to get too hardcore tonight, but we're going to draw a couple of things. And on each point of the triangle, you can draw like a little line. The top here balancing. And these are our three vital relationships. In other words, if all else fails, you give yourself to these three, you got it. And as you can imagine, the first one, it's everything we do at Liquid is relational. And what is the first one, obviously? Our relationship with God. We're going to put that one at the top, obviously. If you had a colored pen, you put it in red. That's nice. Intimacy with God. And then on the left, we have community with who? What we're calling and what Paul calls insiders. Now, that doesn't have a great connotation, but I'll explain more in a minute. And on the right-hand side, or the left-hand side, depending on how you're looking at it, is influence, strategic influence with outsiders. God, insiders, and outsiders. These three vital relationships are at the heart of what Jesus gave to his church. When he left. Intimacy with God, right? I mean, that's getting to know Jesus Christ as our brother. God, and we can actually call him father as we were doing our opening worship. Community with insiders. That means, actually, it's not just me and God, but I now enter into the life 
of the body of Christ here on earth. Corporate worship. That's why we get together in this big congregation like this. We grow our faith. We encourage and care for one another. But then influence with outsiders. In other words, we become intentional about nurturing trust-based friendships with those outside the faith. Now, I want to take a minute to look at each one of those, okay? And the first one, obviously, is intimacy with God, okay? And that's the goal of the Christian life. In John 17, it's the only time that Jesus gives the exact definition of eternal life, and you might be surprised by what it is. Now, this is eternal life, that they sing hymns forever and ever and ever and ever in heaven. No. John 17, 3, Jesus says, now this is eternal life, that they may, what? Know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is Jesus' definition of eternal life. It's not actually all about heaven or the afterlife, as some have led you to believe, but about a relationship that's marked by relational intimacy with God that begins while we're here on earth and continues to its fruition in heaven, that they may know you. Now, here's the deal with knowing. (laughs) You can know someone in a couple of ways. Uh, Well, you know, I know Tara. I know, you know, she has blonde hair. I know where she lives. I know where you live, Tara. Uh, But I know Chris. Chris and I stayed up till four in the morning, you know, watching his sick daughter. I know Chris in a very impersonal way. There's different kinds of knowing. And knowing is not necessarily intellectual assent or information. I mean, what does it mean when you say you want to get to know somebody? Oh, I think I'd like to get to know her. What's that mean? Maybe that's a bad example. Uh, (laughs) Biblical knowledge. (laughs) You want to find out what they're all about, right? What makes that person passionate? I want to find out what makes them tick. What makes them come alive? What's their character really like? Same with God. The knowledge of his character, what he's really like, his love, his mercy, his goodness. The psalmist writes, taste and see that the Lord is good. Experience him. So there are two assumptions here about the knowledge of God. One, that our God, actually the Christian God, is knowable. It's profound. (laughs) That he's not removed, that he's not aloof and totally beyond our comprehension. He's a total mystery. No, he's knowable. And the second is that he wants to be known by you. And towards that end, Christians, the followers of Christ, are given two primary ways to do that. I mean, there are several ways to do that, but two that we use kind of as regular disciplines. And the first is, how do you get to know someone? You listen to them. You hear what they have to say, how they act. The record of that is in God's word. That's how you really get to know somebody, by what they say and what they do. And that's the Bible, the very record of God's very words and actions throughout recorded human history. And that's one of the reasons we read it and study it, right? To understand how God thinks, how he relates to his people. There are a lot of distortions out there about God. In the Old Testament, we learn how God was faithful and forgiving of his people, right? Our Jewish forefathers in the faith. But in the New Testament, we see the person of Jesus, This living son of God who literally walked the earth and demonstrated exactly what God's heart is like towards man. The cross reveals the glory of God's heart most incredibly, right? It's amazing. God wanted his estranged children back so much that he laid down his own life for them. He took the initiative towards us. He started the relationship. God on the cross. That's what God's character is. A God who loves beyond reason. Who's self-sacrificing and heroic. That's what we read about. But it's not a one-way conversation. What else do we get to do in knowing somebody? We speak back. Prayer, right? We actually can talk with God. We don't just read his words, but we share our words with him in conversation. 
We're able to tell him our thoughts and our feelings. And he's actually interested, Scripture says. Cast all your anxieties and your cares on him because he cares for you. You're actually not too much for him. But prayer is also listening, right? Quieting down, bringing our minds to stillness, making space in our busy days to to hear God's voice. The fact that he might want to actually be telling us something. And that's why many of us practice the discipline of of quiet times. How many of you heard that phrase before, quiet times? Time you intentionally set aside just to be with God, just to hang out. (laughs) To actually listen to his voice, tell him where we're at, hear what's on his heart and mind. That's how you cultivate intimacy with a person, isn't it? I know in marriage it comes from spending unstructured time together. (laughs) It's not, I got 15 minutes, Colleen, sit down, I want to tell you a few things. No, it's about getting real about what's going on inside, listening, opening your heart, responding, learning to love the other. Same thing with God. Intimacy is the exact same thing. Those of you who practice the art of quieting down with God, you know how transformational it can be. Usually the staff knows when I've spent time with God in the morning prior to a staff meeting because I emerge a different person after my quiet times with God. You know, it's like when Moses spoke face-to-face with God, what happened to his face? It's a shining face. They get a very different Tim. I'm not shining, (laughs) but I'm not so manic. (laughs) I'm not so distracted. I'm actually truly there with people. I actually feel compassion for where people are at. Don't see them as objects to manipulate or to to, to motivate. That's what happens when you spend time with someone. Their character rubs off on you, isn't it? It begins to influence your own character and heart. And that's the, the magic of intimacy. You develop that trust and love relationship. You find out what makes the other tick, and you love them for it. Intimacy, it's a way of knowing. Source of great joy and security in a marriage, and anyone in marriage will tell you it has to be intentional. <laughs> well, many folks car- here carve out time to be intimate with God. I'll raise hands. How many of you have some form of, uh, form of regular devotions? You carve out some quiet time at some point during the week. Raise your hands. Okay. All right, good. Thank you for your honesty. It's probably about 50%. It's Okay. Intimacy is not supposed to be a duty. It won't keep going, actually, if you consider it a duty. It's supposed to be a delight. Something that comes naturally towards people that you love deeply. I see this impulse towards intimacy in my own family, actually, on a very natural basis. You see a picture there of my little boy, Dell, my little girl, Chase. We call it the Lucas Family Lovin'. This funny thing happens. It happens twice or three times a week. Um, the first thing in the morning, my kids get up earlier before I do. I'm usually up late, kind of out late, so I try to sleep in. Um, and my little kids get up first thing, you know, 6.45, whatever. They get up. Colleen gets up. She lets them loose. It's like she lets Walker out of his cage. And they come running into the bedroom, and they actually jump up on my bed, and they smother me. I actually try to hide from them. I pull the sheets. I keep the pillow over. But Chase, my little girl, she hugs me. It's strangling. But she hugs me around the neck. Daddy, daddy. And my little boy, Dell, his full name is Walker, but he kind of, he, he kisses me, which is really slobbering and biting, <laughs> okay? And the funny thing is our dog, some of you guys know we have a dog, Percy. He even gets in on the act. It's the only time he jumps up on the bed and he's got this weird thing. He doesn't kiss, he doesn't hug. He rubs his butt <laughs> like this. And he rubs it on me. So as you can imagine, like in the morning, I'm just waking up, and they're hugging and kissing, and it mostly happens on Saturday. But we call it the Lucas family loving. <laughs> Why? Why do they do this? Why is that impulse in them? Because they relish being loved on by daddy first thing in the morning. It orients their whole day. They, once they maul me, Chase starts singing, and she's off having a dance party. 
My little boy starts running, going down the stairs, throwing something. Percy starts wagging his tail. It's one of my primary roles, actually, as their father, to simply embrace them in the morning, love on them, and I give them the love and security that kind of just fuels their whole day. It's amazing to me to see how natural that is for a child. (laughs) To seek out their father first thing in the morning for a little love. When do we lose that impulse? As adults who are rushed and driven to get somewhere. How about that idea that your heavenly father is waiting to love on you in the morning? For you to come to him and to tell him what you're thinking, to be held by him, to listen to his voice, in the abiding presence of his great love, orient you for the day ahead. That's how intimacy happens. And that's at the heart of our purpose in life. That they may know the, true, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And in the knowing, we're changed. We actually become more like him. Why? So that vertical relationship can begin affecting the horizontal ones with one another. Community with insiders, that second vital relationship of our mission. Yes, the Christian life actually was not meant to be done alone. The Christian life is not all about time alone with God. That's where one-on-one intimacy happens, but that's not how community happens. I want you to flip over a chapter to chapter 4 of Ephesians. Take a look. This is one chapter over. Paul describes how the overflow of our relationship with God is supposed to result in this incredible sense of unity with one another. This is Ephesians chapter 4 again. We'll look at the first six verses. Let's look at the NIV translation here. As a prisoner for the Lord then, Paul, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. One, 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 one. There's a little emphasis on unity here. (laughs) One of the primary reasons it's essential that we cultivate intimacy with God is that it will affect the way we relate to one another. Someone who's well-loved by their father and actually bonds with him naturally has an overflow to actually bond and tolerate their brothers and sisters in the faith. (laughs) God is our father, right? The church is our spiritual family. That's that's why we'll be calling this series that I'm kind of introducing tonight, All in the Family. It's about the kind of family we're trying to nurture here. And as with most families, that means we relate to one another as siblings. And that's where the problem starts. (laughs) Because if your siblings are like my kids, it ain't all tea and roses. A little girl and boy you saw smiling in a photo a minute ago, I showed you. That's like a, a censored photo. Because if you were to go on safari in my house and like capture them in the wild, it'd be just that, wild. <laughs> Walker pulling Chase's hair. Chase kind of gouging his eyes. She's like, Mommy, he's hurting me. Gouging him in there, you know. That was a moment of rare calm and tranquility for them. Daddy brings the peace. Same thing with the family of God, we're told. That's how we relate to one another. Paul tells us, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. In other words, he knows that we're not all naturally going to get along. 
Are you surprised by this? <laughs> Nonetheless, we're called to be patient and bear with one another. That is, pursue the unity and peace by actually creating Christ-centered community when we gather as a family. What we have in common, a lot, a lot of things that cause differences, but we have Christ in common. And this is pretty much what, what they gave themselves to in the early church, and it was remarkable. It was a, a one-of-a-kind, world-transforming church. They intentionally pursued peaceful, loving, sacrificial community with one another in both large and small groups. Acts 2 actually uh, gives us the best picture of this. This is the early recorded history of the church of Jesus Christ when it was just birthed after Jesus left. And it says in verse 46 and 47, Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Whenever the early Christians gathered together, a sense of community pervaded them, coming into unity. That's community. A a coming together under this banner of Jesus Christ caused something supernatural to happen. People of all different backgrounds, ethnicities, socioeconomic strata, slaves, masters, all were pervaded by a sense of harmony and care for one another. It was a beautiful thing. We talked, we've talked about this before, you know this. this. The verse before this one, in fact, says, right, selling their possessions and goods. Look at verse 45. They gave to anyone as he had need. So they not only accepted one another's faults and differences, they were generous in sharing and caring for one another. This is the essence of Christian love. Community that is bound together by the love of Jesus himself. And it's a very, very rare thing. The world rarely sees this kind of community. In fact, what happens when it does? Well, we're told that the early church enjoyed the favor of all the people, and the Lord what? Added to their number daily those who were being saved. Why? Because of the charismatic preaching of Peter? No. People saw something powerful in the way that they cared for one another. What can God do when he gets a hold of a life or the life of a people? It's interesting because after Jesus left, the early church actually kept it quite simple. They actually really only gave themselves to two things according to uh, this passage in Acts. And I'll actually invite you to draw one more triangle. Let's do this. You're going to draw two triangles tonight. It says they actually had a big mission. And their mission went like this. Every day they continued to meet together where? In verse 46. You can call out loud. The temple courts. That is the church. Look at them. They actually had a church service, okay? This was the large group gathering. But they also did something else. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Where else did they meet? In homes. Homes were not big. You're talking small group community. This is, I mean, this is where the small group philosophy kind of comes from. It's not something that was made up or like came into vogue or something. It's simply doing what the early church did. And they did two primary ways of gathering, in a large group and a small group. That was their way to grow, the way to follow Jesus. Corporate worship and home-based fellowship. That's the model of the early church. And it makes sense when you think about it. Because what happens in the large gathering when an entire community comes together for worship and teaching? you realize that the whole faith thing is actually about something much bigger than just yourself. When you see others in worship, especially those not like you, 
you get a sense of how vast and diverse the family of God is. Something happens when we gather together here corporately. I notice that. Whenever I go away, even on vacation, sometimes it's nice to take a break once in a while. But after a week, I actually find myself really missing corporate worship. And it's not just for the music style, though the worship team is wonderful. But there's something about being with all of you. At the same time, that large gathering is not enough, we're told. The second half of the equation for the early church was small groups of believers that met together in homes. And as you know, we are becoming a church of small groups. Because that's where you really get to know one another in an intimate way. In a way that a large you know, gathering of people on Sunday doesn't allow. You become intimate with one another's strengths. With your weaknesses. Yes, with your dreams and your fears. And this, we get to care for and nurture one another. Just as Christ commanded. In other words, it's where we get to practice our faith. Raising hands in a big gathering all together, that's one form of worship. Walking alongside someone during a divorce or a breakup or an illness, whoa, whole nother aspect of faith you get to practice. It's why we've invested so much time in developing such an extensive menu of small groups for people to plug into. You know the metaphor that we're kind of using here at Liquid, the idea that we want to move folks from the foyer, that's what we call this Sunday gathering or large group gathering of friends here, some of us casual acquaintances, we don't know everybody, it's not like family, we want to move you ultimately into the Kitchen, that's small group community with family. Kitchen is where friends become family. You talk about the nitty-gritty stuff of life around the kitchen table. (laughs) It's the place where you're actually really missed if you're not there. You know what? If you don't come next Sunday, people here may not notice. Are you shocked? (laughs) In a crowd this size, sometimes being dark, they may not notice if you're not here. But in small groups, you're vitally missed. You gather with others in your season of life to grow in the areas that you need help. Our groups are very diverse, as you know, and they minister to people specifically in stages of life. You can look at, like, Rachel Picone's group celebrating singleness, right, for women in their 30s plus. Or Wild at Heart, led by Brennan Coughlin. It's for young men. They're studying John Eldridge's book, learning what does the Bible say about becoming men, masculinity, issues related specifically to men. Or the Kingman's group for married couples, learning to navigate married life. Engaged couples are in that one. They want to know what they're getting into. Can we have some mentors there? Or maybe folks who just have kids, and and how in the world is my marriage going to survive that? (laughs) I'm not going to have the answers for you on Sunday night. But you will find people to travel with during the week. And we believe small groups are the environment where actually significant life change has the best possibility to occur. And And that's humbling to say as a guy who makes his living, you know, preaching on Sunday. But you know what? Hearing a message in a large gathering like this, it actually has limited impact. You may be challenged. You may be inspired. But in small group community, you really dig into it. You start sorting through the issues, you make them your own, you challenge one another, you tear through the Bible, and you speak into one another's lives. It's where real life change has the best chance of occurring in my book. And I want to make a caveat here, because I know that's not easy. I don't want to pretend this is a piece of cake. I meet regularly with a group of guys on Tuesday mornings, and those who know me laugh because they know I'm not a morning person. (laughs) As I told you, I'd like to tell you that I wake up all chipper like, oh good, I get to go pray with Mike and the boys. But you know what? It's not like that most mornings. The night before, I actually usually start thinking of all the reasons why I shouldn't go. I, I've got too much to do. I, I wonder if Mike's up, if I can, you know, instant message him. I, there's too much happening tomorrow. I've got five meetings in Rome, and then I start feeling overwhelmed. And then Colleen's like, no, you really should go. It's too late to call those guys. And then I start getting resentful. Why'd they make me go so early? What, you know, who prays at this hour in the morning? But I drag my butt out of bed, 
And I privately cursed my brothers in my truck on the way over, probably. Why? Because in spite of my bad attitude, it never fails. Every time I emerge, I spend about an hour and a half together, just kind of reading God's word, listening to what's on one another's heart, praying with, one, with and for one another. You know what? I emerge a new person. My friends can tell the difference. When my kids were sick and I was at the end of my rope, to have a brother actually just lay hands on me and ask God to give me extra strength and patience for me and my wife, that was like the touch of God himself. I'm changed. All that grit and grime from the night before dissipates. And I emerge to take on the day in a new way. And I've been ministered to by friends, by the hands of Jesus. And sometimes that's reversed. I get the privilege of ministering to them, of listening or speaking into their life or encouraging him. For me personally, it's one of the only places where I can truly let my hair down, just kind of be my true self, let my weaknesses or concerns show, and just be accepted. I feel like sometimes I wear so many hats during the day, you know, as a pastor, as a leader of teams, meeting with colleagues, or I'm being a husband to Colleen, or here I'm a father to my children. Uh, You know, most of those roles involve me being strong (laughs) and giving something to folks who are counting on me and looking to me for something. Ain't too many places I can just be myself. One of the only environments you can be totally transparent and authentic with others. That's what small group is to me. It's where friends become family as God intended. It's funny because I used to believe that stuff like that should just happen organically. (laughs) You know, we're always caring for one another. We're always gathering for friendship and spiritual growth. But you know what? Life has made me a pragmatist. It simply does not happen spontaneously in the Christian life. That's why we call it intentional community, just as the early church did. Did you know that actually? That's actually one of the key measures we use here at Liquid. We're not concerned so much with Sunday attendance, though important, or or giving, though critical, but small group participation is one of our key markers of success. Currently, we have about 250 or so folks, you know, participating, and that's a wonderful thing. You know, it's like 60% or so. That's fantastic. But I also want to be warned because I know that number is likely inflated because we just launched our spring small groups. And many of you joined a small group. You're still in the honeymoon stage. But the time is going to come when you don't want to go. <laughs> You're going to have all sorts of reasons. I don't have time. So-and-so is getting on my nerves. I can't let believe they let her in the group. <laughs> you laugh. It, but it's God's ordained way of developing our character. Learning to what? Bear with one another's faults. Paul used the word bear. In other words, there are going to be people you have to bear with. That means tolerate. That means put up with. That means go, oh. <laughs> And learning to actually carry one another's burdens. Have you actually ever thought that? That perhaps the annoying person in your group is exactly why God placed you in that group to begin with. Community with insiders is essential to our growth and maturity as a follower of Christ. It was Christ himself who led the original Christian small group, isn't it? He preached to crowds of thousands But he intentionally traveled with how many? A small group of 12. He spent his life with them. He poured his heart out to them. He rejoiced. He grieved with them to the very end. And notice, Christ did not pick the all-stars for his small group. (laughs) Peter was likely the guy who would never shut up. (laughs) John, oh, the beloved disciple. (laughs) The teacher's pet, in other words. And Judas, I don't think he's getting this, guys. (laughs) Right? Not the point. God's design is for intentional community with others who are sharing the journey to become like Christ Jesus. Now, if you stop there, you stop short. 
Because this is where most Christians call it quits, right? They say, not bad, I'm doing it. I come to church on Sundays. I do small group community. I got it. I got two out of three. Intimacy with God, community with insiders. Not perfect, but I'm starting. It's the third vital relationship that is perhaps the most vital for expanding the kingdom of God in this part of the world. Influence with outsiders. In his letter to the Colossians, Paul writes this. He says, Be wise. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer everyone. I want you to notice something amazing. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Let your conversation be full of grace. What's implied? That we're actually talking with people who don't share our beliefs. Imagine that. (laughs) That while it's vital to develop community with insiders, it's equally critical that we are intentionally interacting with those outside of the Christian faith. We're not to keep ourselves in a bubble. To create a Christian ghetto. Where we have devotions in the morning. And then only relate to other Christians at church. Hey, what's going on? See a small group Tuesday. This is a... (laughs) You know it. You've seen the Christian ghetto, right? This is about immediately, intentionally pursuing strategic friendships with those outside the faith. So that they too may find their way back to the God who loves them. Now, outsiders is actually an iffy word here. I'm actually kind of reluctant to use it. Because in many ways it creates this false dichotomy between there's insiders and there's outsiders. Like there are those who get it and are in the in crowd. And then there are those who can't quite make the cut for some reason. Sorry, you're not in the club. You fall short. God never intended that there be any walls between the two. Remember, Paul stressed this point emphatically to the Ephesians, right? The mystery is that people who've never heard of God and those who've heard of him all their lives, what I've been calling outsiders and insiders, they stand on the same ground before God. They get the same offer, same help, same promises in Christ Jesus. The message is accessible and welcoming to everyone across the board. Translation. Those outside the Christian faith are not targets. (laughs) They're not special projects. People to manipulate or just win over. Rather, we're supposed to follow Christ's example and develop trust-based friendships with them. Those who are not following Jesus yet with their lives. Reality check. Let me just even ask you that. How many substantial friendships do you have currently with non-believers? How many? Uh, I didn't ask if you do. I know. So you're like, I know a non-believer. No, I how many? <laughs> That's kidding. How many? How many? This third aspect, influence with outsiders, is the crux of the mission that Jesus bequeathed to us. Go and what? Make disciples of all nations. It's funny. Many folks, when they become Christians, or they become like serious about their faith, they actually immediately withdraw from all their secular friends. They're now a bad influence. And that actually may be necessary for a time. I don't want to poo-poo that. But we're called by God to actually be in the world, not of the world, in order to spread the influence of the kingdom of Jesus with those who have yet to know him intimately. Our natural drift as humans is actually to becoming insular. Big surprise by that? And this is where the church becomes ingrown. We grow comfortable in the kitchen. We like the kitchen. It's warm in the kitchen. Comfort food. And we never make it to the front porch. 
That's the final room in this home that we're designing here at Liquid. Although we want people to end up in the small group community, we don't want them to stay there. It's not the end goal. Reaching out to those in the world around us, our neighbors, the guy at work, the girl at the gym, the mom in your playgroup, that's the point. Laying down our life for the lost, as Jesus did. That's the highest calling of any follower of Christ on this earth. And like small groups, it's a relationship that we need to be intentional about as well. Like the other two, this one doesn't just naturally happen, at least not for the majority of us. Like most friendships, it actually takes work. You have to nurture it. It means spending downtime with others outside of the family of faith. It means inviting a non-believing mom to your play group, not just your church friends. It means regularly going to, to dinner or the movies or a gym with a non-Christian coworker. Developing those everyday relationships of trust and intimacy to establish that at least you're not a nut, as most people see contemporary Christians. And that actually there's something, I don't know, there's something quite different about you. There's something compelling. Not just that you don't curse or, you know, drink. I'm not talking like little moral, like, there's a sense of compassion, of kindness, of inclusion, of honesty and care that pervades the way you treat everyone. Something compelling and so magnetic that naturally opens the desire, the desire to find out more. And once you establish a genuine friendship, you do. What do friends naturally do? You share what's important to you. You tell them about your faith, not in a salesman manipulative kind of way. That just, whenever you go into salesman approach, that simply means you haven't invested the time in a real friendship. Because you don't sell your friends. But in bits and pieces, you tell them about your intimacy with God. Here's my experience with God. In this community that you found. You, you, you maybe, of all things, invite them to church. And you can do that with some degree of confidence because you know we work hard at Liquid to create a large group environment that is relevant, that's welcoming and non-judgmental towards, towards all who attend. Your friend isn't going to you know, come here and get all weirded out. <laughs> you don't have to worry about us getting all Jesus-y, you know? <laughs> yes, we love Jesus. But ordinary folks are gather here, just ordinary folks, to learn about an extraordinary God who loves all kinds of people across the board. So again, reality check. How many of you have invited a non-believing friend to our church in the last 12 months? Oh, whoa, awesome. Go. Can we celebrate those people? Let's celebrate. Let's go. Oh, man. That's, I wasn't expecting that. You're already on this. Look at you. Completed the mission. <laughs> Strategic influence with outsiders. That's the third vital dimension of our equation. And if you don't, you're out of balance. You're going to lean towards an insider mentality, okay, that, that kind of just blinds you to the needs of the world around you, a world that the Bible underscores that God so loved and gave his life for. So look again now at all three relationships. How are you doing here? Take a look at them. How are you doing? If you were to rate yourself, give yourself some grades in the 3Q, what would you say is your strongest suit, by the way? And which one is your weakest link? For me, my strong suit actually is community with insiders. Not surprising. I am a pastor, <laughs> after all. I spend a lot of time with many of you. It's not that I don't care for outsiders. <laughs> But I find my time and my tendency when I'm not intentional is to spend the majority of my time with other church folks. So that would probably be my number one thing. My second thing would actually be, real honest, I'd love to tell you as outsiders, but it's probably 
my time with God. And I know we all have busy schedules. It's very hard. How am I going to do all these things? And it's not like you have to check them off. But intimacy with God is actually hard for me at times. I wish I could say I naturally run to my father, jump on the bed every morning, but I don't. <laughs> Sometimes silence can be intimidating. Or my impatience gets the best of me. I actually am an extrovert. I feel more comfortable actually with others. In large group settings like this, they kind of jazz me up. Small group community, like I said, I have a love-hate relationship with. But I'm like, ah, oh, it's essential for growth, so I prioritize time for it. But I was thinking about this week, and no doubt, my weakest link <laughs> for me, influence with outsiders. Tim's weakest link. There you go. I know that's shameful for a church leader, but it's true. If I'm completely honest, those relationships go right off my radar. I can count on one hand the amount of significant interactions I've had this week with non-believers. One, two. And I'll tell you about them in a minute. But before I do that, I'll ask again, how are you doing with, with the three vital relationships? What, what is your strong suit? Would you answer that? Would you circle that right now on your bulletin, you, where you've drawn this? Maybe you've carved into the back of the pew. Just kind of circle that right in there. Maybe you shy away from others, especially church people. You keep your faith private. You know, you like the big group gathering. Stay anonymous. You know a few people, but superficially. Well, here's the deal. Most of us are strong in one of these areas. And most surprisingly, we tend to play to our strengths. So if we're a people person, you know, don't really come alive at the prospect of studying the Bible on our own, we'll do that. Call it our preferred way of growing. I just got to be with other people. I don't, I just, I'm not good with just me and God alone. I don't know. It's just the way I'm wired. The problem with this is that the moment you focus on one of these areas and neglect the others, you're inevitably going to go out of balance. Balance in the Christian life, what I'm calling missional balance, is a delicate thing. And that's why the image of a triangle is so fitting, right? All three sides have to bear the same equal weight in order to support the whole. And if one of those sides becomes underdeveloped, then some terrible things happen in the Christian life. Things that will atrophy your faith. Get you spinning your wheels spiritually. And the worst case is actually rob you of having any impact in the lives of those who have yet to find their way back to God. Let me show you what I mean by this. I'm going to pay for you three quick portraits of believers out of balance. Girls gone wild, believers out of balance. Watch. First one. Intimacy with God. Let's say this is your thing. How many of you circled intimacy with God? You said, actually, that's, that's the one for me that I actually have a really strong primary relationship with God. Okay, good. Uh, personal Bible study and prayer is your strong suit. Wonderful. That's a gift. That's essential. It colors everything. You grow in the knowledge of God. But when it becomes overgrown to the neglect of your relationships with others, you become what I call the Lone Ranger Saint. (laughs) This is the Christian who is so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. You can write that down. So heavenly minded, no earthly good, and I know some of you shaking your head, you've met them. So focused on their personal relationship with God, they totally forsake fellowship, meaningful at least with others. Forget small groups, because they're not serious enough about the word. You'd rather focus on your own study and really just dig into the scriptures. Now that's a fine impulse, okay? But again, life change happens in small group context. You you, look, you can figure out, you know what? You can figure out the four types of Greek words used for the word love, do a word study on them, but if you don't have a group of people to actually love, what's the point? You get it? You know you've got a tendency, I'll give you an example. If you're not sure, you know you've got a tendency towards being a Lone Ranger saint if you just get lost in Christian books. 
That's another danger, right? You're really good at growing your personal relationship with Beth Moore. Or, you know, you've, 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 oh, you've just asked Max Lucado into your heart and no one else, right? No one else gets in. Or if you have trouble relating to anybody who's not serious about discipleship, which is the majority of the world, by the way, okay? Uh, because you're so filled with theology and spiritual concepts. You go out to lunch with your coworkers and you can't enter into a regular conversation with you. They're talking about Grey's Anatomy and your only point of reference for a medical show is Dr. Dobson. <laughs> so you withdraw from awkward situations like that. A little bit of the monkish mentality. Community is unpredictable and not all that valuable. You know, insiders can be messy and outsiders can be, I don't know, worldly. So you're growing on your own, the Lone Ranger Saint. How many of you have a tendency possibly, potentially, to pull in that direction? Just, uh, okay, this is where the participation ends. All right, that's good. All right. The second way you can grow out of balance if you're exclusively drawn to community with insiders. You love being with church people, the fellowship of the church. You wish there was more going on here every night of the week. Why? Because you love your brothers and sisters. And the church is your thing. You not only attend Liquid on Sunday nights, but you go somewhere else in the morning, you lead a small group, you're in a small group, you serve all the time. Guess what? You are in danger of becoming that well-known character from Saturday Night Live, the church lady. Well, isn't that... You want to join my club? Well, isn't that special? Here's the thing. Spending that much time with the high and the holy has a funny effect on the heart. Because if you're not careful, before long, you're going to start looking down your nose on the outsiders who aren't with the whole church thing. This is who Paul was really referring to, by the way. The Jewish people, the Pharisees, who become so enamored of their religion and rituals that they turned it into a club. And there were those who measured up, dressed the right way, believed the right things, said the right things, and then there were the Gentiles, the pagans, the hopelessly lost, those cut off from God, those not like me. And this is tricky because we're instructed to grow in holiness and righteousness and be set apart, but also to invest our relationship with God in the lives of other outsiders. And when we don't do that, we lose perspective. There's a great example of this in Luke uh, chapter 18. Would you turn to that real quick? Luke 18. Jesus tells this story about a tax man and a Pharisee. This is in uh, Luke 18, verse 9. It says, Jesus told his next story to some who were complacently pleased with themselves over their moral performance and looked down their noses at the common people. I'm reading the message paraphrase, verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax man. The Pharisee posed and prayed like this. Oh God, I thank you that I am not like the other people. Robbers, crooks, adulterers, or, heaven forbid, like this tax man. I fast twice a week and tithe on all my income. Meanwhile, the tax man slumped in the shadows, his face in his hands, not daring to look up, said, God, give mercy, forgive me, a sinner. Jesus commented, this tax man, not the other, went home made right with God. If you walk around with your nose in the air, you're going to end up flat on your face. But if you're content to be simply yourself, you'll become more than yourself. In other words, Jesus is telling a story, a parable to make a point. What's the danger of becoming a religious insider? 
someone who's only about church and God's people, a judgmentalism creeps in. And you become blind to your own condition. And slowly and subtly, we become ingrown, kind of measuring our own value in terms of how we're performing against other people on the outside. Am I avoiding the big ticket sins? Check. Am I tithing? Check. Literally, this is what this man's mentality is, this Pharisee that Jesus highlights. And then we begin feeling good about ourselves because look at the outsiders who are blowing it. And our prayers take on this tone. Oh God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers, crooks, adulterers, or heaven forbid, like this man. You see all the ways that the, the world is failing to live up to God and you begin keeping track of all the ways that you're superior. That's the church lady syndrome. Where faith in God somehow loses its life. Other-focused love. It becomes about creating a Christian bubble that draws sharp distinction about who's in and who's not. So how many church ladies in waiting do we have? I know, no one's going to raise their hand. Okay, how many of you have seen Saturday Night Live? Good, now, okay, now you're all indicted. Great. <laughs> the impulse of church ladies is to turn the church into a club that exists to serve its members. You've got to keep the riffraff out. Um, it's funny, religious cliques are the saddest example of a faith that's out of balance because cliques do one thing. They're based about who's not allowed in. And you begin spending your time and energy inventing rules, erecting boundaries to keep newcomers out. And I know some of you come from those churches, the fortress mentality. Keep out the unholy pagans. Raise up the drawbridge and withdraw from the world. Hide in the church. Well, ain't happening in Jesus' church. It's not his idea. He's the one who left heaven. Talk about a holy sanctuary to come and be with the likes of us. Finally, and this is the distortion that I suspect most of the people here tonight even wrestle with. There are those of us who are progressive Christians. You've been nodding your heads because you get it. Quote, (laughs) you realize the church is supposed to be about engaging the world, not hiding from it. Of course we're supposed to have non-Christian friends. Well, duh. I didn't become a Christian to just go to church. I want to take my faith with me. So I go where my coworkers go. I swim in the culture. I enjoy my freedom in Christ, and I leverage it in all the relationships I have with my non-Christian friends. Now, that's actually a popular maxim among our crowd here at Liquid. On more than one occasion, I've had friends tell me with great pride, they're actually, I actually have way more non-Christian friends than I do Christian ones to. In fact, can I be honest, I don't actually even enjoy hanging out with Christians. Uh, I'm much more comfortable with non-believers. I've had people tell me that as like, kind of like a badge of honor. And part of me is like, good for you. And part of me is like, sort of. <laughs> Because that attitude is typically hung under the banner of engaging the culture, yet it's a very tricky line, isn't it? As Cameron Strang, the editor of Relevant Magazine, notes, I mean, we try to get outside of the Christian bubble, love others, be open-minded, and live in freedom. So we drink, but just in moderation, of course. All right, we cuss, but, you know, just for humor or effect. We, you know, watch movies that our parents wouldn't because it's like, well, we're just more, way more in touch than they are. And we criticize all the goons, right? Pat Robertson and TBN, cheesy Christian music and everything else about the Christian subculture. And we hang out at bars and clubs, originally to be light and darkness, but now really just for a good time. And suddenly there we are, without even realizing it, living exactly like the world. We actually cease to have any influence at all, zero impact, because it's the outsider's who are mostly influencing us. That's what happens if you're out of balance and oriented towards influencing non-believers, to the exclusion 
of community with other believers and regular intimacy with God. You become a carnal Christian. That is, one who professes to follow Jesus with your mouth, but whose private attitudes and public actions actually tell a much different story. You're very turned off by the piousness of the church lady. You're like, ram the church lady, Tim. You run in the opposite direction, right, towards giving great license to your flesh under the banner of Christian freedom. And slowly but surely, you find two yous emerging. The one you that you are around your Christian friends when you're out of worship service or in a small group. And the other you that you're like around your real friends or your pagan buddies who can be really yourself. You may have entered into that with good intentions. I'll be a light in darkness by working at the club, but now you're actually just dim. It's one thing to offer a hand of friendship to the world, folks. It's another to French kiss it. (laughs) Scripture tells us plainly, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, yes, we need to embrace grace and freedom in our daily lives. There is tremendous liberty in the Christian journey. But we're also to remember that we're called apart. (laughs) That what we have in our spirits actually does separate us from the world. We're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. And we do have a hope and a freedom and a trust in Christ that the world is looking for. And those we're in friendship with need to see the difference in that. So if you share a relationship with non-Christians, that's a great question. What sets you apart in their minds? Anything? Anything at all? Other than just going to church? If not, what's the point? The carnal Christian resembles outsiders in so many ways that it's kind of ironic. By becoming like the culture, blending in so well, they fail to impact it at all. And that's a failure. It's a failure to be light and darkness. Set apart and let your light shine before men. So, do you see how this is rigged? Why it's so critical that you invest in developing each of these three vital relationships. It's called missional balance. If you're out of, out of it in, in one respect, you see what happens. You become the Lone Ranger Saint if you're just intimacy with God. You become the church lady if it's all about fellowship with believers, large and small groups, or if it's just influence with outsiders. You turn fleshly. So how are you doing in each? Think about those. Which one do you have a tendency to go towards? Which are you in danger of potentially getting absorbed into? It's the reason why our mission at Liquid centers around these three key relationships. Intimacy with God, community with insiders, and influence with outsiders. How are you doing in each? In fact, let me close with that challenge. What relationship, out of those three, are you neglecting most? What's, what's most out of balance in your life? I mean, I've painted in pretty broad brush strokes tonight, but you get the idea. You don't have to be a church lady to stop and realize that, you know. <laughs> now that you mention it, almost all of my friendships are with other believers. I have very little influence with outsiders, mostly acquaintances. As I said, that's actually my story. I'll end with my story. Because <laughs> before I share this message with you each week, God preaches it to me. <laughs> And this week I realized that I'm in danger of letting my friendships with outsiders just kind of atrophy. I have a ton of great relationships with many of you, but I don't want to miss out on Jesus' mission to reach those who aren't here yet. That's actually how Liquid was first created. Do you know that? Our original mission statement is what we're trying to create a church for those who aren't here yet. (laughs) 
That's what I was birthed. And that was beautiful. The problem is, is that once those people started showing up, <laughs> many of them became insiders. <laughs> and we become comfortable. So how about that gal you work with? That guy you see at the gym. Are you strategically nurturing that relationship in the hopes that one day you'll be able to introduce him to the person who changed your life? To always be able to give an answer, meaning someone's asking you questions by the way you're living? I was convicted of this this past week, and I don't want to, because I'm like, I don't want to preside over a church that simply caters to its members. (laughs) It was all about us, ourselves. So I took it personally and started being intentional in my conversations with non-believing friends. And I talked with Ray, the guy who cuts my hair, on Thursday. I got a haircut. (laughs) You noticed. Thumbs up, thumbs down. Oh, this is where everyone participates. I see a lot of the waffling here. Uh Uh-huh. Now, here's the deal. Ray is gay. Ray does not go to church. But we enjoy a nice relationship, even though he knows I'm a minister. (laughs) And it's actually kind of ironic. I hid the fact that I worked for a church for a while. But then Ray outed me. (laughs) He's like... You keep saying you work for a nonprofit organization in a white building and it has a steeple. You're a church person. <laughs> Look at Caught me. Out of me. But it's nice. He's been cutting my hair for about four years and we talk about all sorts of things, mostly like movies, restaurants, current events, books we're reading, vacation plans, mostly polite stuff, nothing too in depth. So this week I decide I'm going to go for it. And I sit down and, uh, and he's like, <laughs> actually, he's like, he's like, woof, what happened to this head? <laughs> He doesn't like when my hair gets big. So he, so, so he starts cutting it, and he says, uh, so what's going on? What are we talking about today? And I say, I say, well, can I just ask you a frank question? I mean, just, just could, would you be uncensored with me? And he, like, we both like, look in the mirror. You know how like, you don't look at each other? He like, looks up. And, and I go, what keeps you from going to church? What, what is it that turns you off? And he's rarely at a loss for words. He goes, oh, I, wait, what keeps you from Why are you at church? Oh, there's there's so many beliefs. I just like put down those shears, you know. He's like getting a little nervous, and he's like, "There's so many reasons. There's so many. So I mean, you know, but I don't want to offend you. I go offend me. I go. He goes, all right, I'll go anyway. Um, You know, this whole idea that like God wants to send you to hell. What's that about? You know, God, this bloodthirsty guy wants to send everyone to hell. You know, if they don't follow the Ten Commandments, these rules that men made up just to kind of mask their insecurities. You know. They don't want other men horning in on their women, so it's like, do not commit adultery. Right. It's like, oh, so you do have some beliefs. <laughs> He's like, oh, yeah. He goes, I got strong beliefs. And he started telling me, grew up Catholic, went to Sunday school, became irrelevant for him around seven or eight. And so now he's cobbled together his own beliefs. He kept telling me, he's like, actually, I don't believe in, in, he- in hell or heaven, he goes. It's not like I just want something good. I believe in the afterlife. What comes around goes around. And I'm like, oh, uh, is, that like, uh, that's car- is that karma? He goes, yeah, karma, exactly. We come back somehow, but, you know, it's like what? We just get one time around and, like, to go through, and if we, you know, don't obey every law we burn, pff, I don't want that religion. And I said, well, it sounds like you, you do have some very strong religious beliefs. Would you even call yourself religious? He goes, oh, I'm not religious, but I am spiritual. I said, well, that's interesting. How, how, do you, how, do you, how, do you, how would you say you practice your spirituality, Right. And he's like, well, and he's like, you know, trimming. And he's like, I mean, I meditate, but not as often as I should. <laughs> and I looked at him and could say, I was like, that's okay. I don't pray as often as I should, honestly. And I was like, how do you make, like, moral decisions? Like, you know, like you mentioned, like, adultery or such stuff. He goes, well, I don't see what the big deal about sex is. There's a big difference to me between loving someone and having sex with them. 
I mean, sex is just something that naturally happens. It's like, what's the big hang-up? That's just our impulse, you know? But nurturing somebody, that's a whole other deal. I mean, who's to say that's wrong? You know, it, I know that's not popular, and I, I can't even believe I'm telling you this. <laughs> he goes, but maybe it's because I'm a Scorpio. <laughs> and so I, I realized, all right, all right, it's on, Ray. A <laughs> uh, little bit of Buddhism, a little bit of astrology, you know, sweet peppered in there. A little salad bar spirituality. And it was great because he stopped. He goes, look, I'm sorry. I just get so excited and heated about this kind of thing. And I don't want to offend you. I mean, you're, you're a minister and all, right? And I was like, are you kidding? I go, thank you for being so candid. I said, actually, one of the things, Ray, that I want to, want to do as a pastor is not just be with church people all the time. You know, just like lose friendships with people in my life like you. It actually makes me feel valued that you'd actually share everything that you did. And he stopped cutting my hair and he said, well... I'm actually surprised I said so much. But you know what? (laughs) You have always struck me as someone I can trust. Like, not judgmental. Like, like Like, you're not itching, like, to send people to hell. I said, no, actually, I'm not. And neither is God, right? I said, all right, tell me about your church. What do you believe? And then my haircut was over. But our conversation, I sense, is just beginning. It's just beginning. What relationships does God have waiting for you out there for you to step into? I want to challenge you this week to take an action step in one of these key relationships that is your greatest weakness. Maybe actually it's intimacy with God then you block out some time just to get to know your father. Reacquaint yourself with him. Soak in his word a bit. Prayer, silence. Maybe it's community with insiders. Maybe you need to take a step towards community. Maybe perhaps joining a small group for the first time. Don't get discouraged or drop out if you had a sucky one this week. (laughs) One of God's ordained ways of growing us is learning to allow, allow us to care for one another in community. But influence for outsiders, that's for me. I want to know, who is your ray? What non-believers in your weekly life could you take your friendship to the next level with some intentional, non-coercive conversation? It's got to be built on trust. Ray said he trusted me. Four years of that to have one conversation. I dare you to ask, if you think of that person, ask them why they don't go to church. (laughs) That will help prepare us for the rest of this series as we discuss the kind of missionally balanced church God's calling us to be. Let's pray together. Lord, I want to thank you that you live in community, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You know intimacy on a level, Lord, that we will only know one day. But Lord, it wasn't just focused towards one another. There was enough love that was other-focused. And you aimed it at us in this earth. And you came for us, Lord, when we were in our sins. When we were outsiders, you made a way back to the arms of the Father. Friendship with God through the sacrifice of Christ Jesus. We thank you, Jesus, for risking it to come to this earth to influence us, to open up a way back to our Heavenly Father. I pray now, Lord, that you would bring us back into balance personally, Lord, and as a church. Let there be a degree of missional balance this year that makes us a -a one-of-a-kind kingdom outpost here in New Jersey that radically impacts the world you gave your life for. We want to mirror you in that, Jesus. Do it by the power of your Holy Spirit.
In your name, amen.